Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, with Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group headed by yours truly. And on this is episode 130 film. Uh, where are we at here now on this journey? One, film 135. Uh, following up the last film, 134 was Foul playing Casablanca. This is film 135, La Chica de los Labios Rojos, also known as The Girl with the Red Lips. So, this is where we're at now. 1984 in the Jess Franco filmography. Um, but yeah, uh, before I jump into that, let me just go back to myself real fast. Um, Update, we've got uh, Lady Hyde, of course, streaming on Tubi, and uh, still waiting for Amazon Prime to add it. We've got a few other channels on there, uh, Mommy 2 and um, about three or four other ones. So we've got a total of six stations now for Lady Hyde. Uh, I'm currently uploading Emmanuel in Sin City. It's uh, about a 128 gig gigabyte uh, file, and my computer is about a .01 upload speed. So it's looking at about, it's going to be about a month to upload that goddamn thing. So, you know, about eight hours a day, load about 2% a day, so 3% a day, somewhere like that. Do the math. So, yeah. So that's where that's at. And uh, just kind of getting that going right now, and may do another film by the end of the year. We'll see where we're at. But uh, right now, money's really tight. I'm kind of in between jobs and uh, running out of time and uh, money, so we'll see how we go. But speaking of knowing how to run out of time and running out of money, it's kind of where Jess Franco's at right here in 1984 uh, at this point in his career. He's uh, doing his own thing with Manicoa Films, um, and he's seeing the um, independent film landscape start to dry up, and he's seeing... uh, kind of his best years go by and he's still churning out amazing films really good product and a lot of his films in this period are looking inward at a person that's kind of seeing life pass them by and running out of options and all that so um i really like this this part of jess franco's filmography he's doing almost like early 70s uh Hollywood, not in a bad way, but the the thing where it's very downbeat and very introspective, cool films that were coming out of Hollywood from like, you know, 69 to 74, and he's kind of doing that here in 1984 with his own deal. So, yeah, here it is. The Girl with the Red Lips, La Chica de los Labios Rojos, uh, Spain, 1984. It's uh, the alternative title, La Mujer de los Labios Rojos, uh, Death, Death Has Red Lips. Uh, production companies, uh, Gabriel Iglesias Martin out of Madrid, and, of course, Jess Franco's Manicoa Films. Theatrical distributor. This film is unreleased theatrically. Uh, shooting date, circa May 1984, and he got the legal number for it, but even though it wasn't put out, in 1984 of September 5th. Um, it says, running time converted. So what the only copy of this out there, um, and I'm I have yet to watch this. I'm kind of recording this first. Uh, pull back the curtain here. Uh, this is a work print, so I'm not sure if any of you have seen a work print before. It's usually the film that's put out before it's uh, finished, you know, and you have a lot of uh, holes and notes and things on the thing um, on the print, like you'll have um, instructions or a lot of. Uh, 
real changes or scene changes and markings on it and things. It's it's a un, unfinished um, deal. So yeah, Spanish work print. It's uh, 93 minutes and 13 seconds. It says, uh, according to official records, La Chica de los Labigos Rojos was registered for a deposit legal number under the title Los Blues del Cali Pop. That's weird. That's, which that film had already been made. Oh yeah, and anyway, before I go any further, of course all information we get on the... Uh, facts and all this study and all the good stuff on this film is from the book Flowers of Perversion by Stephen Thrower, The Delirious Cinema of Just Franco, Volume 2. All right, back to the film. Uh, of course, on this, the writer, director, and co-producer is Jess Franco, uh, uncredited uh, executive producer, Gabriel Iglesias Martin, director of photography and camera operator, Jess Franco, production manager, Antonio Mayans, and editor, Jess Franco. So, Tally time. Jess Franco is the writer, director, co-producer, director of photography, camera operator, and editor. Ha-cha-cha. All right, cast on this. Lena Romay uh, plays Terry Morgan, La Bios Rojos. Karen Dior plays Tina, Terry's friend. Antonio Mayans, billed as Robert Foster, uh, plays Alfredo Pereira. Yeah, it's funny. I read somebody's picture the other day that had, oh, the actual real Robert Forrester, and then it said Antonio Lyons played Robert Forrester. I'm like, well, it's Robert Foster, but I think he did do Forrester once or twice. Or I don't know how many times, but I know it's definitely Robert Foster was the prominent spelling of it. And here he plays Alfredo Pereira. Not Al Pereira, but Alfredo Pereira. Uncredited. Trino Traveras plays Emir Kal Mahan. Jose Lamas plays Brian Hobson. Fata Morgana plays Melissa Kamahan. Jose Miguel Garcia Marfa plays Moran, Man Seeking the Diamond. Mabel Escano plays Linda Suarez, Woman Seeking the Diamond. And Jess Franco plays Professor Carame. And Diego Porta plays Diego Caputo. Oh yeah, it's also Franco's acting in it as well. So, Alright, um, let's go ahead and read the synopsis. What the hell? Uh, North Africa, Terry Morgan, a female private detective nicknamed La Bios Rojos, who moonlights as a nightclub performer, is hired by the Emir Kalmahan's secretary to help find Melissa, the Emir's daughter, who has disappeared with the most fabulous piece of her father's collection, the Kalmahan diamond. The Emir suspects guitarist Brian Hobson, his daughter's boyfriend, of organizing the kidnapping. What's more, he tells Terry that he has been contacted by a man named Freddie Moran, who offered to sell him back the diamond. Terry and her friend Tina arrive in Tunis, where they have to get in touch with a certain Diego Caputo, but director, but Detective Al Pereira is also after Kalmahan. To get information from Terry, Pereira poses as a gay antiquarian named Polito. Terry sends her friend Tina who poses as Countess Irene Camalucci to seduce him. Others are looking for the diamond as well. Terry is caught by Moran and his accomplice Linda Suarez, who captured Caputo and obtained information about Terry's appointment with Professor Carme, an eccentric Ameri- Armenian millionaire. Linda goes to the appointment posing as Terry, but finds Carame dying. Before he expires, he gives her a paper in Arabic. Pereira rescues Terry, and takes her back to her hotel. But then it's Tina's turn to be kidnapped by Moran, who mistakes her for Terry. 
Pereira finds out that Moran and Linda work for Melissa, who hired them to buy the diamond for her. Moran kidnaps Terry once again, as he and Linda wrongly believe she knows where the diamond is. Brian and Melissa show up and take Terry away. But who's got the diamond? Eventually, Terry and Tina face the real Imur Kal Mahan, who has had the diamond in his possession all the time. Kal Mahan has posed as his had posed as his secretary and vice versa, and the stolen jewel was a fake. He had set up all the chase to fraud the insurance company and poisoned Carme, who had been his accomplice all along. In the ensuing chaos, the diamond changes hands many times. Pereira gets it, but Terry and Rita have the last laugh. See, just reading that, that's sounds like a lot of, if you watch it, you get confused, because it's all these switch and switch and switch and switch stuff, and that's one thing that sometimes as a viewer of Franco films, I don't really care for a lot of that, but I'll, I'll, I'll remain open-minded, but still, that's just kind of like, ugh, I always know the, the ones that are a little bit harder, like that way, so. All right, uh, production notes, Jess Franco's La Chica de la Labios Rojos, 1984, is currently available only as a grimy, scratchy, chalk-marked work print, which was transferred to videotape and released in Spain in mid-1980s, with the cover title, La Mujer de la Labios Rojos. Uh, never played in Spanish cinemas or anywhere else. Instead, it exists in a curious limbo, tenuously available but somehow remote. In many ways, it's the sole representation of all those supposedly finished but unreleased Franco films, such as Voices de Morete, Barrio Chino, Teleporno, Las Chabones de Una Budabisco, and so on whose canisters are either long gone to landfill or are yet to be excavated from obscure, dusty storage. Sadly, we'll probably never see this film as it ought to be seen. It's almost certain that the work print was never sent to a negative cutter. Therefore, no genuine master negative was assembled and no 35mm work print was struck. The only way we'll ever see this movie properly is if someone finds the raw negative footage, has it digitally transferred, and then assembled and mastered as per this work print. All right, review by Stephen Thrower. Um, a low-energy meander through the comedy spy motifs that seem to be Franco's fallback position whenever sex and horror are out of fashion. La Chica de la Labios Rojos is a difficult film to love. Not only is the story pretty weak and the sex and violence, quote, minimal, but the only version we see today presents a perfect storm of visual obstruction, a beaten and battered work print bearing numerous editor's chalk marks conveyed by an ugly brownish video transfer which hides 50% of the detail. Is there a decent film in there somewhere waiting to be revealed one day on gleaming Blu-ray? In all honesty, much as I would love to see it properly restored, I doubt if La Chica de la Labios Rojos will ever knock anyone's socks off. It feels depleted, like a car out of gas with just enough momentum to keep rolling, but not enough to pick up speed. The plot hinges around various characters pretending to be someone else as they scramble to find an enormous missing diamond. But the characters themselves lack vitality. A procession of familiar faces are joined by a few recent arrivals. Um, but the infusion of new blood fails to refresh the scenario, and everything dribbles by in disultory fashion. Scenes plot on for minutes at a time. 
uh, Romain and Dior spend an eternity in a hotel bathroom chatting and showering and putting on makeup like something from a 1960s Andy Warhol film. And for a director whose scripts often ran to just a handful of pages, there's an awful lot of chatty, inconsequential dialogue. There is some nudity here and there, but when Lena Romay and Karen Dior hang out in the bathroom together, they are shot from the waist up, with none of the lingering crotch shots one grows accustomed to Frago's post-60s work. Meanwhile, the two sexual encounters are quite tame by Franco's standards. In both cases, they are played as comedy, seeking to gain information about Melissa and the missing diamond. The Red Lips girls take it in turns to seduce Al Pereira, who is posing undercover as a wealthy homosexual antique dealer called Polito. In order to maintain his facade of gay disinterest, Pereira remains fully clothed, so the Red Lips vixens simply lie face down on top of him, giving us nothing except a sustained shot of their nude rear ends. This may be fine if you're madly in love with Lena Romay's bottom, but there's not a lot going on if it's action you're looking for. At least, some of the dialogue is amusing when Tina takes a stab at seducing Pereira by posing as the lavacious Countess Irina. He rebuffs her and characterizes Polito, saying, All women remind me of my poor mother, God rest her soul. Undeterred, Tina responds, So you wouldn't fancy a little bit of incest? Unfortunately, ultimately, however, that's there's not much erotic charge to these frolics. Violence is thin on this ground, too, unless you count the startling scene where Al Pereira fe- fetches Terry a series of hard slaps across the face. Fetches Terry, that's silly. Uh, followed by a pulverizing gut punch, a scene which pays off when Tina creeps up from behind Pereira and smashes a large ceramic pot over his head. Considering that Pereira and the Red Lips girls are probably Franco's favorite reoccurring characters, this encounter feels like a knockout comedy, knockout contest designed to establish a definite hierarchy. Naturally enough, Franco's oft-aired feelings about the relative merits of men and women, Pereira must take second place. So, the film has problems, but if we could see where Franco intended, but if we could see what Franco intended us, intended us to see, we might forgive at least some of its failings, because, on closer inspection, it appears to be a rather beautifully lit. Franco opted to shoot mostly with natural light for this project, and the results demonstrate his technical skill even when working without his trusty lighting cameraman, Juan Solar, as his side. Sometimes the effect is tenebrously elegant. <laughs> Otherwise, it's purposely harsh and strident. In one scene shot next to a plate glass window, the sunlight streams in so imperiously that poor old Tino Travers who has pages and pages of dialogue, has to shield his eyes with his hand. That's funny. With little artificial enhancement, the film's play of gleam and gloom is inscribed into the celluloid by Franco's creative positioning of the camera. Interiors are illuminated by pools of light amid inky shadows, and with just a wide-angle lens and some judicious use of window blinds, he manages to make an out-of-hours Arabic restaurant look mysterious and menacing. Cool and shady hotel lobbies are suddenly bleached out in headachy brightness as sunlight catches the lens with characters loom and amid fronds of indoor interior vegetation to spy through layers of intervening glass. I love how he just tries to put all these big words in here. This is funny. Turning the film frame into a checkerboard of reflections and superimpositions. Perhaps with a decent, delicate decent digital transfer, these visual details would compensate for the drawn-out dialogue and cliched character interplay. It would be very interesting to know. Alright, 
Franco on screen. Franco appears briefly in a small role as a nervous gangster. Music. For this late return to the Red Lips formula, Franco dips into numerous old scores spanning three decades of his work. We hear the moody whistling theme from Rafifi in the City, 1964, some action-packed big band cues from Kiss Me Monster, 1967, the sleepy jazz theme from Kiss Me Killer, 1973, the moody title theme from Barbed Wire Dolls, 75, a smoochy jazz number from Apollo de Fuego, 78, and a melancholy rumination from uh, La Noche de los Sexos Abrichnos, 1981. While it's a pleasure to hear pieces from so many different periods of Franco's career, I'm less convinced by the wisdom of using the same music on the credits as was previously used for Pickup Girls, 1981, just a year before. Sola Ante et Terror, 83, had dressed up its credit sequence in freeform electronics ported over from the credits from Sinister Dr. Orloff, making this the second regrettable lapse in imagination for a director who usually at least tries to shuffle the features and fittings of his obsessively Silical cinema. <sighs> Alright. Locations. Ben Dorm and Benamadine Dina stand in for North Africa with the soundtrack smattering of Arabic music picking up the slack. Connection. This is another in the line of Red Lips films which begins with La Bios Rojos, 1960, and blossom with the back-to-back comedy thrillers Sadistico Rotica, 67, and Kiss Me Monster, 67. In the opening scenes, Terry flashes her nude body to distract the driver of a car. Then after he swerves off the road, she purloins the documents he's carrying and pins a mock note to his trapped body. The last details echo the opening of La Bios Rojos. Terry plays a trumpet in a nightclub, echoing Gianno Renault and Rosanna Yanni's Red Lips duo, who pose as saxophonist and kissing monster. While Al Pereira, as a gay antiques dealer, is a shout back to the role played by Franco himself in Sadisterotica, as is the scene which Tina poses as a wealthy noblewoman to try and gain information from him. This credit sequence concentrates on a close-up of a gemstone held to the light, echoing the title sequence of Apollo de Fuego. There's something slightly forlorn about the decision to cast Lena Romay as a singular red lips girl. The lipstick single symbol is no longer the sign of a female duo taking on crooks and cops alike but the calling card of one woman, which inevitably smacks of diminishment. Diminishment. Uh, the last time we saw Pereira, he was being conned by a Rome femme fatale in Camino Solitario, before he was murdered by another Rome villainess in Botos Negros Latigo de Cuero. Plus, plus cha-change. I don't know what that means. Plus, plus C-A-change. This would be Pereira's last outing until Al Pereira versus the Alligator Ladies in nineteen. Or, I'm sorry, in twenty twelve. Karen Dior wears the same pair of tribal mask earrings which Rome wore in Sangre in los Zapatos, blood on my shoes. So, all right, that is all the information on this film. So, yeah, this is uh, going to be interesting to watch. The girl with the red lips. Uh, work print version, so um, I'm not sure if I'll have a reviewer on this. Um, I have a lot of good films coming up after this, Bahia Blanca and Trip to Bangkok and all that. We might have some guest reviewers on that. Uh, this one might just be myself, um, depending on time and situation and everything, so uh, the more I think about it, it actually might just be a solo review. So, uh, yeah, so hang out, um, pass the bumper, and I will give you my review of The Girl with the red lips. 
Adiós, amigo. Chica de los labios rojos, growth red lips, and uh, this is a uh, singular review by Jason Rudy, the creator of the Franco Observer podcast. So, um, yeah, I've done a, a solo one in a while, so this will be interesting to sit here and uh, go through this again. So, this is episode one thirty, film one thirty five, and this is a red lips film. Um, I liked Red Lips films. Um, started off, of course, with um, uh, Red Lips, uh, Lo, Labios Rojos from 1960. Then there was um, Kiss Me Monster and uh, Sadist Erotica, or Two Undercover Angels. And um, I think Apollo de Fuego um, is a Red Lips film. And there might be one or two more. But uh, yeah, I, I like the series. And it's funny because in the book, he almost talks about how Lena is a singular red lips girl and then but really the gal she brings along is is her assistant uh tina and terry Teti. so uh no I, I you know to me those are the red lips girls it wasn't just lena um even though the gal works for her but still it's almost like she's training the next red lips girl so um as you know uh if you're a franco fan or read the book or whatever uh, this is a work print, so uh, it's a film that was never released theatrically. They took the print, uh, work print, without like finished um, credits and everything, just some video credits that was put on later, uh, over the beginning and end, um, and uh, put on videotape. So you see a lot of the chalk marks from the uh, work print writings from where they changed the angles and... Uh, all the cuts and everything, so um, you know it's it's really faded and foggy and, and really washed out print, like a like a D quality, you know D D minus or whatever. I mean, it's still watchable and and uh, parts of it are really good. And I could really see how this film would be a lot better if you could see it a lot clearer. Um, but if you listen to these episodes over time, you always know one thing that I really like is when I'm surprised by this film. So. Knowing it's a work print, knowing it's a later era Franco, and it's a spy comedy type deal, and it's repeating a lot of things and stuff. It had the Lips Girls, and it had Al Pereira, and those to me is always really good. So by the end of the film, I really liked this film a lot. I thought it was good. It's not my top 20 or anything or nothing like that, but uh, it was a lot better than I thought. Um, I liked a lot of the snappy dialogue. The stuff with Lena and her assistant, and um, a lot of uh, a lot of fast, funny stuff, and that's what I liked. It was inconsequential to the story and the plot, but it kept the characters going. It kept it fast, and uh, it felt real natural, and that I liked a lot. Um, starts off with the film where it's a really bizarre opening. You just see like Lena. 24 seconds in, first nudity. She's sitting there, she flashes a guy that's driving a car. He's like driving a car, and she's sitting there, and she flashes, opens her jacket, and she's completely nude. The guy swerves off the road, and uh, she calls him a derogatory name, uh, the the other F word, and uh, he calls her a slut, and uh, he crashes the car, and she uh, takes the 
information that he has that she needs and leaves a red lipstick thing and establishes who she is, the red lips girl and, and everything. La Bios Rojos. And uh, it starts off the film really fast. It's like, whoa, you know, it's really funny. I like that. Um, and, uh, and then it goes to uh, Lena in the club. She's like standing there in a club. It's like, her, you know, she always has a scene where she's like stripping in a club or whatever. This one, she wasn't stripping. She was wearing these little panties and uh, topless with an open shirt and playing a trumpet. It was really cool. And she had a, she had her candy coster blonde wig on and uh, she's wearing panties and stockings and the open shirt and playing the trumpet and everybody's watching and they applaud her and they really like what she's doing. And she does a good job uh, pantomiming playing the trumpet. I'm sure Franco taught her how to do that, you know, and it looked believable. It was funny. Um, I'm just going to kind of pick apart some things that I, that I liked as I went through. Uh, there's a scene where Lena's kind of getting the feel of the program and the guy's talking to her. Um, that's supposed to be the secretary of, of uh, actually it's supposed to be the old man that's, well, okay, let me go back a bit. Um, so basically, this film is about Lena's hired. Uh, I mean, I, I talked about it in the opening, but in a nutshell, Lena is hired as the Red Lips girl to basically find uh, a diamond that she thought was switched. And you see all these different people come in to the picture and you figure out who is who. Everybody pretends to be somebody else from um, the main guy, his secretary, his daughter, and a boyfriend and these other insurance people and the detective and everybody says there's somebody else in it. It's a totally thing. And there's a lot of um, mistaken identity, knocking people out, carrying them out of rooms real fast, and then the person looks around, where'd they go? And then they deliver them back, oh, there you are, you know, that type of thing where they do quite a bit of hiding bodies and that type of stuff. So you see a lot of that, not bodies, but people knocked out. Um, so you see a lot of that with here. But, uh, you know, there's a funny scene where Lena's getting the rundown from the guy. And Franco filmed this a lot with a really good natural light. And there's really, really good lighting in this film and really nice shots, of course, and nice setups. But there's a part where the old man has all this dialogue and he's given to Lena and, like, the sun's shining right in his eyes. And he, like, keeps putting his hand in front of his eyes. And it was funny because, you know, they just probably kept that going. And, I don't know, he, he should have blocked it better or something or, or switched positions or switched his camera setup. But it was, it was funny watching that. Um, like I mentioned, I liked the good, funny, snappy dialogue between, uh, Lena and the other, um, Red Lips girl, uh, which is, this was her first film, um, uh, no, I'm sorry, not first one, but, uh, uh, Corinne Dior, um, and it says here that, uh, let's see where we at here, um, yeah, Corinne Dior, a few recent arrivals, this is not her first Franco film, but, uh, she, she had, um, cause, uh, let me see, I think she's back in... Uh, Karen Dior, she in, um, Foul Play in Casablanca, uh, no, I don't think she's in that, no, okay, so yeah, no, this is, I think this might be one of her first Franco films, but, uh, yeah, she's funny as Tina and Terry, uh, Morgan, and she plays Tina, and then, um, Antonio Mayans is really great, of course, is Alfredo Pereira, Al Pereira, this is great, um, there's a really cool scene where, He's like has a fight with Lena. He just slaps the shit out of her, and punches her in the stomach, and she's like, "Jesus, he's just such a scumbag detective. He doesn't care about things." And that's a, that's the prayer for you, and, that, and he plays it really well in this. Um, there's a really cool scene I like where Lena sitting in a peacock um, rattan, kind of a fan back chair. She's smoking a cigarette. It's like perfect Lena, kind of a throwback to uh, Rolls Royce Baby. And uh, that's one thing about this film too. This film, like they talk about it being a greatest hits. There's um, to me, it's the greatest hits of just after all the 
130 films I've seen of Franco. You see a lot of the returning things. You see the Al Pereira. You see the Red Lips Girls. You have um, a lot of Lena's famous clothes, actually, in this. Her famous uh, kind of like green and orange uh, shoulder tie, or that kind of ties around her neck, kind of a um, long dress she's worn in probably, goddamn maybe 10 or 15 really great 70s Franco films and uh, uh, Tina, her assistant, wears it in this. Lena also wears her famous see-through black kind of nightgown where it's kind of the black chiffon. She wears that in there and she also wears that famous uh, metallic top that uh, like her tits hang out the side. She ties around her her neck. Um, She wears that and then those uh, tight silvery pants and she wears uh, a lot of her famous outfits in this which is really cool. Um, Let's see. Um, I was laughing. Al Pereira plays a homosexual uh, antiques dealer named Polito, and the scene with him and uh, Terry, uh, I'm sorry, Tina, trying to act like she's the Russian um, uh, princess, and they have the scene where he's pretending like he's the gay antique dealer, and she's pretending to be Russian, and they're like schooling each other back and forth, and seeing the lies between each other, and it's funny. So um, he acts like he's gay, and then he doesn't find her at all interesting, and then she seduces him, and he goes for it because he likes her and stuff. And uh, it's funny, so after he has sex with her, when he gets up to leave, he like writes a note, folds it in half, and sticks it in her butt cheeks, and she doesn't feel that she's sleeping. And then she wakes up to like see where he's at, naked on the bed. She like sits up and then fills her butt and then pulls the note out and reads it. It's like, come on, dude, you know the fuck piece of paper of your ass. So stupid. Uh, but yeah, the really nice shots in this. Um, I mentioned the scene where Al slaps and threatens Lena. I was like, whoa, you know, um, it's a good scene. Also, too, I was watching this, and uh, there's a good scene where Lena and him finally make love and stuff. And I was like wondering how many films or how many times has Lena and Antonio Mayans made love on screen? It's like, it's funny because I, as a director, you start thinking about certain things yourself. Oh, I've done this too many times or done that too many times. But then I thought, God damn, Lena and him, like, get down on, on film, <laughs> like, every other film it seems like or I'm curious I should go back now and make a chart and see but uh, I would guess shit 30 plus times at least by this time so I thought it was pretty funny uh, what else we got yeah so um, yeah it, it was a interesting film um, I don't know if they even have a print of this or, or what the situation with it is um, you obviously can't make a print off this this work print, you know, you have to go back and make a master of, of the, of the original print. So I don't know if they can even do that or if they have the means to, or if the, um, if the, um, deal is there, what to, uh, do all that. So yeah, it's, it's sad that, uh, this is a film that isn't lost. I mean, it's good that it was saved, but it was one of the many unfinished or unreleased or whatever films by Franco that are kind of lost in the ethos. And, um, with all the restoration that vinegar syndrome does, they should definitely work on something like this because, uh, I don't know. It's, I really liked it. It's, it's good, good pace. It's fast. Uh, thrower kind of doesn't like it as much. And this is where me and him differ on, on, um, films and such that, um, I don't know. I, I, um, really liked, you know, the situation of it and stuff. And I really liked, uh, the way the dialogue was and, and there, there's a scene where he kind of comments bad about about how scene where Lena and her in the shower or bathroom talking back and forth and uh, you know even though it doesn't move the film along I liked the scene because it was funny it just felt like a real scene like you're just standing there hanging out with these two people in the doorway while they're talking and it, it, it felt real you know and uh, 
it was funny and they're insulting each other and talking shit and this and that and stuff and uh I don't know, stuff like that just felt real natural, and, and I, I think those are an important part of films. And, and as a filmmaker, I think, um, you know, I always try to learn off his films, and that's one thing I would do is to have those natural instances like that because uh, you want to feel like those people are your friends or your family or, or, or somebody you're hanging out with, and it's not as, um, you know, far away and stuff. So, yeah. I, I think that's that's a good lesson is to have those kind of f- familiar moments between people that are natural and that, uh, you know, you, you don't always have to fucking push the story along or you don't have to always move the chip each time you go up. It's like a board game. <clears throat> you don't need to keep going step by step by step. You can just hang out and, and just do your thing and not, and not, you know, worry about shit so much. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's another thing, too, with the short attention spans and people want to everything down to a certain science and a certain formula. And I think if you, uh, kind of just do your own thing, you know, don't, don't worry about that shit. But of course you can't bore people and stuff and and whatever, man. I don't know. I think one person is bored is another person's just taking their time. So I don't know. I I think it's all your your perspective. So, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I've been kind of going through as well. Um, kind of going off subject here is like, uh, I don't know. I, I, as, as it as a creator, you kind of go through times where you, uh, I don't know, maybe get lost or, or get, uh, sidetracked or, or off focused and that. So, um, and, uh, Franco kind of feels that way with his films where he kind of just starts wandering and he doesn't know where he's going and stuff. So I don't know. I think I've myself kind of going through a little bit of a depression or a little, uh, thing myself with this situation. I kind of enjoy that about Franco and I can just kind of feel like, uh, you know, there's somebody out there that had gone through the same thing and you kind of see how they push through their little situation. So I don't know. So I think all of you out there that have a rough time or something, just keep going and, uh, you know, just take it day by day. So it's the only advice I can give you. So anyway, uh, on to the Franco list. So this is a list I put together back in the day and built and built and built over screenings. But as time goes by, and as we get to the end of the Franco uh, Observer podcast uh, run here, you know, getting close to the end of the Franco career, I mean, you still got shit, another uh, 50 episodes or 40-some episodes or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's just some some things aren't used as much anymore on the list. But for prosperity's sake, I'm going to still keep it up because, hey, we're almost there to the end, so why... If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So, all right, here we go. Freakalicious. All right, number one, body of water. Yeah, there's a body of water quite a bit, and here you see the uh, water by the beach and a lot of the water shots from the hotel room. Definitely body of water, uh, ocean-wise. Number two, sailboat. Number three, boats. No, actually, there's no boats at all in this film. No sailboats representing the dream, although the next film, Bahia Blanca, there are going to be tons of motherfucking sailboats in that film. And that's really all about the boats in that next film. So you know how I dig on the boat scheme. So that's going to be my my uh, Shangri-La. Uh, number four, palm trees. Yep, plenty of palm trees in this, as in every Franco film, almost. Number five, uh, jungle sound effects. No jungle sound effects. Number six, chained up person. Nobody's physically chained up in this film. A lot of people that are kidnapped and like knocked unconscious and wake up in chairs and stuff. But nobody's physically chained up or tied up or nothing like that. But they are kidnapped. 
Uh, seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. Well, you have Lena with the um, playing the trumpet, topless with panties in a club scene. Everybody's watching and they applaud, so um, partial. Uh, number eight, club scenes, dancing in a bar or anything like that. No, actually, um, you have the cool um, restaurant that they meet at and stuff, but it's it's always empty. So um, you have that cool location, but no, no, no club scenes, dancing in a bar in this. Number nine, jazz music. Yeah, um, I really like the soundtrack of this. Um, I talked about it in the first part that uh, they got the cool moody whistling theme from uh, Rafifi in the City, and then they got the um, big band cues from Kiss Me Monster, and the jazz theme from Kiss Me Killer, and the title theme from Barbed Wire Dolls, and a jazz number from Apollo de Fuego, which I recognized, and uh, I actually recognize all of them. But and then. Uh, uh, Night of Open Sex too. There's songs from that. So yeah, I I really dug the soundtrack a lot on this actually because it's all a lot of cool greatest hits. Like I said before, a lot of this film is greatest hits. You have the Lena and Robert Forster or Robert Foster Forster, Al Pereira, um, um, Antonio Mayans, and uh, you get them together again in the Red Lips theme, Al Pereira theme, greatest hits of Lena's clothes. You know some of the same story stuff. So um, of course the greatest hits soundtrack. So yeah. It's a lot of good stuff. Uh, where are we at? Number 10, excessive zooms. No. Number 11, out-of-focus shots. No no out-of-focus shots in this. I, I mean, I mean the, the, the print's really foggy and, and beat up, but uh, no, he keeps his camera in focus on this, even though the print isn't. Uh, 12, mirror shots. Yeah, there's actually a lot of cool mirror shots in this. There's uh, one in the club. There's a lot of cool reflections off of uh, glass where, like, Al Pereira, you see his reflection standing there with the sunlight bouncing off. Lena, there's a mere shot when she's in the uh, club scene when she takes her wig off um, after her trumpet scene. There's uh, also a couple of, there's uh, the mirror in the bathroom with Lena and uh, Tina. And there's uh, a really cool mirror, like four or five mirrors put together when um, Jose um, Marfo's character... Let's see, what's he? What's his character's name again? Um, um, Jose Miguel Garcia Marfa played a Moran. He's like the pimp of the uh, a pimp in the film, and uh, there's a cool scene where he walks in. And you see his reflection, like these five little mirrors. It's, it's a cool setup. Uh, number thirteen, mind control theme. No, uh, no mind control themes in this. Um, I mean, they're just obsessed with the diamond, but that's about it. Fourteen, magic tongue scenes. No, Lena does uh, the red lips. Uh, on the smooches on the kit on the cheek and on the mirror and stuff, but no f- uh, magic tongue dancing. Uh, Fifteen red light, no red lights in this. I didn't really catch because it's so faded with the print; it's hard to tell. He's a lot of natural light in this and a lot of day- daytime stuff. Sixteen a sheepskin rug, no uh, masturbation with a letter C item, uh, no on that. Seventeen mad scientist and servant, no no mad scientist or servant. You have the pimp and the prostitute. You have the boyfriend-girlfriend, you have the two Red Lips girls, you have uh, those things, but no mad scientist and servant. Uh, 18, fish tank shots, no fish tank shots. 19, talking parrot or talking animals, talking chimp, dog, nope, nothing like that. 20, end credits, yes or no. Yeah, it just says Finn, F-I-N, but no um, end credits with names or anything. Uh, 21, handwritten notes or signs or anything cheesy like that. No, I didn't really catch nothing like that in this. Uh, 22, spiral staircase shot. Yeah, there's a spiral staircase uh, in Al Pereira's house. Uh, Pulitos, when uh, the naked uh, princess uh, Tina uh, walks down the staircase nude after she wakes up. Um, You see the spiral staircase there. 
Uh, 23, uh, Inept Cops, nope, that's non-figure in this film. 24, Billy Chains, nope, does not figure in this film. 25, Kinks, well, um, the only thing is, um, when she tries to seduce Polito, and he says that all women remind him of his mother, and she says, oh, are you up for a little incest? That's like the only thing, I think. And then, um, oh, there's a threesome, I guess, but that's not really a kink. Um, but he says how he always wants to be submissive and slave, so I guess there's a little bit of that. Um... Let's see what else we got here. Uh, 26 great headboards. Yeah, there's actually a nice headboard at Lena's Hotel I dug. And there's also a great headboard uh, in one other place. So, yeah, mostly I think just those hotels. Uh, 27, fear or desire. I would say desire because they all desire the diamond. Uh, there's really no fear. I mean, afraid of getting killed, but that's nothing. But, yeah, I think all the desire of trying to figure out who has the money and all that stuff. Uh, 28, acoustic guitar player. No, there's no acoustic guitar playing, but their guy that the woman runs away with is a guitar player in a band. They talk about the song he did and everything, but they don't, he doesn't play guitar in there. Um, 29, reading a book scene. Yes, uh, Al reads from the book of, um, of, um, Jess Franco has when he's killed and they're trying to figure out a passage in the book and Al Pereira reads from that book. Uh, and finally, number 30, a pee scene. No, nobody goes pee or uh, pisses in this film. Oh, he takes a shower. No, he's putting her makeup on, but yeah, yeah, no, nothing like that. So, uh, so yeah, that's the uh, top 30 items in the Franco list, Franco Observer list. So, uh, yeah, so. Um, but yeah, in closing, um, I like this film. If you're a Franco completist and you uh, want to see something you haven't seen before, I would recommend it. Um, like I said, it's a, a work print. You could probably get it through Trash Palace. I'm not sure. I know um, Euro Euro Trash. What is it called? Euro Euro Trash Films. That website's no longer with us, so that's where I got my copy. But uh, yeah, um, and it's weird too because the copy that they have, the VHS is uh, La Mural de los Labios Rojos, um, which is. Uh, uh, yeah, the different ones. So it's just a different title, but still, uh, the girl with the red lips and not uh, kiss the red lips, whatever it is. So yeah, so uh, and it's funny too because it's like they, they use a painting of like a um, a guy with gray hair and like a gun holding a woman that's obviously not Lena and him, and then a woman undressing. It's almost like a it says sh- shoulder, so it looks like almost like a '60s or '70s type of a uh, spy novel kind of a drawing which is kind of our illustration which is which is a cool idea but uh yeah totally unlike anything else in the film so i don't know it was very odd but uh yeah looking at the the cover and reading his review i wasn't expecting much and in the end i actually was pleasantly surprised and that's always my uh thing that makes me happy actually talking about things that make you happy and that's one thing uh, i'm always gives me a little bit of a a little a little nice um pep in my step is to you know find something that you like and that uh, you didn't think you were going to like it that much and by the end you're like yeah, it was pretty damn good man I'm glad I watched it I'm glad I could talk about it for a little bit but uh, yeah yeah like I said if you're a Franco completist I would recommend it um, I wouldn't say go out of your way to watch it or anything but yeah if you haven't seen his other films definitely check it out you'd be uh, glad to see it and there's some funny stuff in there so yeah it's all good so 
Alrighty, well, I think that's going to bring this episode to a close. Uh, like I always say, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, if you feel like donating, there's always a donation button there on the uh, Red Circle page, not Red Lips, <laughs> uh, Red Circle page. Um, of course, Lady Hyde is on all streaming services, so check that out, please. I always get a little bit of money from that, so it always helps. Uh, see, although, to be totally uh, transparent with you, uh, yeah, I've had my film on there for like three, three and a half months now, and I haven't seen one dime from it, so I should be getting my earnings coming up here soon, so let's keep me going. We'll see what happens with that, but uh, yeah, so if you're an independent filmmaker, just kind of let you know that. Uh, yeah, but my stuff came up in November, and it's uh, already in the middle of February here, and haven't got shit, so we'll see how it goes, but yeah, so there's that. Um, all right, well, I think I'm rambling. Subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, tell a friend. Watch Lady Hyde. Keep a lookout for Desperate Visions. All right. Adios, amigos.